chapters twenty one and twenty two of the pawn's count by e phillips oppenheim this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by tom weiss chapter twenty one mr fisher's business later on that night led him into unsavory parts he left his car at the corner of fourteenth street and after a moment's reflection as though to refresh his memory he made his way slowly eastwards he wore an unusually shabby overcoat and a felt hat drawn over his eyes both of which garments he had concealed in the automobile even then however his appearance made him an object of some comment a little gang of toughs first jostled him and then turned and followed in his footsteps a man came out of the shadows and they broke away with an oath that cop'll get his head broke some day fisher heard one of them mutter with appropriate adjectives there were others who looked curiously at him one man's hand he felt running over his pockets as he pushed past him a couple of women came screaming down the street and seized him by the arms he shook himself free and listened without a word to their torrent of abuse the lights here seemed to burn more dimly even the flares from the drinking dens seemed secretive and the shadowy places impenetrable it was before a saloon that at last he paused listened for a moment to the sound of the cracked piano inside and entered the place was packed and fortunately for him a scrap of some interest between two villainous-looking italians in a distant corner was occupying the attention of many of the patrons a man with white staring face was banging at the crazy piano without a movement of his body his whole energies apparently directed towards drowning the tumult of oaths and hideous execrations which came from the two combatants a drunken irishman rolling about on the floor kicked at him savagely as he passed an undersized little creature with the face of an old man but the figure of a boy marked him from a distant corner and crept stealthily towards his side fisher reached the counter at last and stood there for a moment waiting two huge rough-looking negroes in soiled linen clothes were dispensing the drinks as one of them passed fisher struck the counter with his forefinger six or seven times observing a particular rhythm the negro started turned his heavily lidded repulsive eyes upon fisher and nodded slightly he handed out the drink he had in his hand and leaned over the counter want the boss he demanded fisher assented the negro lifted the flap of the counter and opened a trap-door leading apparently into a cellar beneath step right down he muttered don't let the boys catch on get out of that tim he added thickly to the dwarf-like figure whose slender fingers were suddenly nearing fisher's neck the creature seemed to melt away fisher dived and descended a dozen steps or so into another bare-looking apartment the door of which was half open there were three men seated at the solitary deal table which was almost the only article of furniture to be seen one somberly dressed in legal black with a pale face and fiercely inquiring eyes half rose to his feet as the newcomer entered another's hand went to his hip pocket the man who was sitting between the two however a great red-headed irishman rose to his feet and pushed them back to their places there's no cause for alarm now boys he declared this is a friend of mine i won't make you acquainted because we're all better friends strangers down in these parts hop it off you two sit down here mr stranger the two men stole away the irishman poured out a glassful of neat whiskey and passed it to his visitor clients of mine he explained tim crooks is in politics got your message boss what's the figure 
two thousand. The Irishman whistled and looked thoughtfully down at the table. "'Isn't it enough?' Fisher asked. "'Enough,' was the hoarse reply. "'Why, there isn't one of my tufts that wouldn't go rat-hunting for a quarter of that. If it's any one in these parts, twelve hours is all I want. It isn't.' The Irishman's face fell. "'Some swell, I suppose. Fifth Avenue way and the swagger parts, eh?' Fisher assented silently. His host poured himself out some whiskey and drank it as though it were water. "'You see, boss,' he pointed out, "'it's no use sending greenhorns out on a job like that, because they only squeak if they're pinched, and pinched they're sure to be, and all my regulars are what we call in sanctuary.' "'You mean they are hiding already?' "'That's some truth,' was the grim admission. "'The cops ain't going to trouble to come after em, so long as they keep here, but they'd nab em fast enough if they showed their noses beyond the end of the fourteenth. Still, I'd like to oblige you, Governor. I don't know who you are, and don't want, but my boys speak fine of you. You know Ed Swindles? Not by name, Fisher confessed. He did that little job up at Detroit, the Irishman went on, dropping his voice a little. I tell you he's a genius at handling a bomb, is Ed. Ed blew that old factory into brick ends, he did. He's in the saloon upstairs, got his girl with him. They've been doing a round of the dancing saloons. "'That's all right, but what about this job?' Fisher inquired, a little impatiently. The Irishman glanced behind him. Then he dropped his voice a little. "'Look here, Governor,' he said. "'I've some idea if it pans out. You've heard of the Hest case?' "'You mean the girl who was murdered?' "'Yes. Well, that chap that did it is within a few feet of where we're sitting.' Fisher took off his spectacles and rubbed them. In the dim light his face looked more grim and powerful than ever. "'Isn't that a little dangerous?' he observed. "'The police mean having him.' "'You're dead right,' the Irishman replied. "'They've got to have him, and he knows it. They'd keep their hands off anyone in these parts if they could. But this bloke's different. He done it too thick, and he's got the public squealing. Now, if we could get him out for long enough, he's the man for your job. Come right along, boss.' He rose heavily to his feet, crossed the room, and threw open the door of what was little more than a cupboard at the further end. The place was in darkness, but a human form sprang suddenly upright. His white face and glaring eyes were the only visible objects in a shroud of darkness. "'That's all right, kid,' the Irishman said soothingly. "'No cops yet. This is a gentleman on business. Wait till I fix a light.' He stepped back and brought a candle from the table at which he had been seated. Fisher helped him light it, and by degrees the interior of the little apartment was illuminated. Its contents were almost negligible. There was simply a foul piece of rug in the corner and a broken chair. With his back to the wall crouched a slim, apparently young man, with a perfectly bloodless face and black eyes under which were blue lines. His clothes were torn and covered with dust, as though he had dragged himself about the floor, and one of his hands was bleeding. "'This gentleman's on business, Jake,' his host repeated. "'Give me some whiskey,' the young man mumbled. The Irishman shaded his eyes. "'Holy Moses, why, you finished that bottle!' he exclaimed. "'It's like water,' the fugitive replied in a hot whisper. "'I drink and I feel nothing. I taste nothing. I forget nothing. Give me something stronger.' He tossed off without hesitation the tumbler half full of whiskey which his guardian fetched him. Then he came out. "'I'm sick of this,' he declared. I'll sit at your table. It's no use talking to me of jobs, he went on. I couldn't get out of here. I made for the docks, but they headed me off. They know where I am. They'll have me sooner or later. 
"'Yes, they'll have you right enough,' the Irishman assented. "'But if there was any chance in the world, this gent could give it to you. He's got a job he wants done up amongst the swells in Fifth Avenue, and there's money enough in it to buy Anna herself if you want her. Anna's are real tough down here,' he explained, turning to Fisher, "'and all the boys are crazy about her.' Jake shook his head, unimpressed. He fixed his eyes upon Fisher, moistened his lips a little, and spoke in a sort of croaky whisper. "'Money's no use to me,' he said, "'nor women either. I'm through with them. You know what I done? I killed my girl. That's what I'm going to the chair for. But if I could get out of this, I'd do your job. I'm kind of hating people. I can't get my girl's face out of my mind. Perhaps if I did your job, I'd have another one to think about.' "'Pleasant company, ain't he?' the Irishman grunted. "'He's the real goods.' Fisher stared at the young man as though fascinated. He seemed beyond and outside human comprehension. Their host was sitting with his hands in his pockets and his feet on another chair. The braces hung from his shoulders upon the floor, his collarless shirt had fallen a little open. His face, with its little tuft of red side whiskers and unshaven chin, was reminiscent of the forest. "'If you want this job fixed, Mr. Stranger,' he said, "'I don't know as Jake here couldn't take it on. It'd have to be done like this. Jake's a real Tony chauffeur, drive anything. If you had your automobile at a spot I could tell you of one evening, just at dusk, I might get him that far, in a set of chauffeur's clothes. Once on the box of your auto he'd be out of this and could give him the slip for a bit. It's the only way I can think of to get him near the game. The arrangement would suit me, Fisher admitted. Jake suddenly showed a gleaming set of unexpectedly white teeth. His eyes stared more than ever. "'I'm game. I'm on to this,' he cried fiercely. "'You can have all there is coming to me, Sullivan, if I get nabbed. But I'm going to take my risk. I hate this hole. It's a rat's den.' "'Then get back to your cupboard, Jake,' the Irishman enjoined. "'I've got to talk business to the gent.' The young man rose to his feet. He took the bottle of whiskey under his arm. His face was still ashen, but his tone was steady. He gripped Fisher by the arm. I will do your job, he promised. I will do it thoroughly. He slouched across the floor, entered his cupboard, and disappeared. Fisher was suddenly aware of the moisture upon his forehead. There was something animal-like, absolutely inhuman, about this creature with whom he had made his murderous bargain. I have no money here, of course, he reminded his companion. Don't know as I blame you, Governor, the other observed with a grin. I saw my tufts lay out in guy only the other day for flashing a smaller wad than you'd carry. You know the rules, and I guess I'll ring up the bank tomorrow morning at eleven o'clock. Does that go? You'll find the deposit there, Fisher promised. You'd better let me know when he's ready to take the job on. The Irishman walked to the door of the steps with his visitor. Give Joe the double knock on the trap door, he directed, and get out of the saloon as quick as you can. There's a dago about there keeps our hands full. Got anything with you? Fisher nodded. His hand stole out of his overcoat pocket. Better give them one if they look like trouble, his host advised. They've plenty of spunk, but I can tell you they make tracks for their holes if they hear one of those things bark. They shall hear it fast enough if they try to hustle me, Fisher observed grimly. You're some pluck, the Irishman declared, as he watched his departing guest ascend the steps. Sure, this is no place for cowards, anyway. And good night and good luck to you. Jake will do your job slick, if anyone could. Fisher beat his little tattoo upon the trap door, 
crawled through it and underneath the flap in the counter, out into the saloon. He paused for a moment to look around on his way to the door. The fight was apparently over, for everyone was standing at the counter, drinking with a swarthy-faced man whose cheeks were stained with blood. From a distant corner came the sound of groans. The air seemed heavier than ever with foul tobacco smoke. The man at the piano still thrashed out his unmelodious chords. Some women in a corner were pretending to dance. One or two of them looked curiously at Fisher, but he passed out unchallenged. Even the air of the slum outside seemed pure and fresh after the heated den he had left. He reached the corner of the street in safety and stepped quickly into his car. He threw both windows wide open and murmured an order to the chauffeur. Then he leaned back and closed his eyes for a moment. He was a man not overburdened with imagination, but it seemed to him just then that he would never be able altogether to forget the face of that ghastly dehumanized creature crouching like some terrified wild animal in his fetid refuge. End of chapter 21 Chapter 22 Mrs. Theodore Hastings was forty-eight years old, which her friend said was the reason why her mansion on Fifth Avenue was furnished and lit with the delicate somberness of an old Italian palace. There was about it none of the garishness, the almost resplendent brilliancy associated with the abodes of many of our neighbors. Although her masseuse confidently assured her that she looked twenty-eight, Mrs. Hastings preferred not to put the matter to the test. She received her carefully selected dinner guest in a great library with cedarwood walls, furnished with almost Victorian sobriety, and illuminated by myriads of hidden lights. Pamela, being a relative, received the special consideration of an affectionately bestowed embrace. "'Pamela, my child, wasn't it splendid I heard that you were in New York?' she exclaimed. "'Quite by accident, too. I think you treat your relatives shamefully.' Her niece laughed. "'Well, anyhow, you're the first of them I've seen at all, and directly Jim told me he was coming to you, I made him ring up in case you had room for me. Jimmy was a dear, Mrs. Hastings declared, and of course there couldn't be a time when there wouldn't be room for you. Even now, at the last moment, though, I haven't quite made up my mind where to put you. Choose, dear. Will you have a Western bishop or a rather dull Englishman? What is the name of the Englishman? Pamela asked with sudden intuition. Lutchester, dear. Quite a nice name, but I know nothing about him. He's brought letters to your uncle. Rather a queer time for Englishmen to be traveling about, we thought. But still, there he is. Seems to have found some people he knows, and I declare he is coming towards you. I met him in London, Pamela whispered, and I never could get on with bishops. The dinner table was large and arranged with that wonderful simplicity which Mrs. Hastings had adopted as the keynote of her New York parties. She had taken, in fact, simplicity under her wing and made a new thing of it. There were more flowers than silver and cut glass than heavy plate. There seemed to be an almost ostentatious desire to conceal the fact that Mr. Hastings had robbed the American public of a good many million dollars. "'Of course,' Pamela declared as they took their places, and she nodded a greeting to some friends around the table, "'fate is throwing us together in the most unaccountable manner.' I accept its vagaries with resignation, Lutchester replied. Besides, it is quite time we met again. You promised to show me New York, and I haven't seen you for days. I don't even remember the promise, Pamela laughed. But in any case, I have changed my mind. 
I am not sure that you are the nice, simple-minded person you profess to be. I begin to have doubts about you. Interest grows with mystery, Lutchester remarked complacently. Let us hope that I am promoted in your mind. Well, I am not at all sure. Of course, I am not an Englishman, so it is of no particular interest to me, but if you really came over here on important affairs, I am not sure that I approve of your playing golf the day after your arrival. That perhaps was thoughtless, he admitted, but one gets so short of exercise on board ship. Of course, Pamela observed tentatively, I'd forgive you even now if you'd only be a little more frank with me. I am prepared to be candor itself, he assured her. Tell me, she begged, the whole extent of your mission in America. He glanced around. If we were alone, he replied, I might court indiscretion so far as to tell you. Then we will leave the answer to that question until after dinner, she said. She talked to her left-hand neighbor for a few moments, and Lutchester followed suit. They turned to one another again, however, at the first opportunity. I have conceived, she told him, a great admiration for Mr. Oscar Fisher. A very able man, Lutchester agreed. He is not only that, Pamela continued, but he is a man with large principles and great ideas. Principles, Lutchester murmured. Of course you don't like him, Pamela went on, and I don't wonder at that. He is thoroughly German, isn't he? Almost prejudiced, I'm afraid, Lutchester assented. Don't be silly, Pamela protested. Why, he's German by birth, and although you English are much too pig-headed to see any good in an enemy, I think you must admit that the way they all hang together, Germans, I mean, all over the world, is perfectly wonderful. There have been a few remarks of the same sort, Lutchester reminded her, about the inhabitants of the British Empire, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, for instance. As a matter of fact, Pamela admitted generously, I consider that your colonials understand the word patriotism better than ordinary Englishmen. With them, as with the Germans, it is almost a passionate impulse. Your hearts may be in the right places, but you always give one the impression of finding the whole thing rather a bore. Well, so it is, Lutchester insisted. Who wants to give up a very agreeable profession and enter upon a career of bloodshed, abandon all one's habits, and lose most of one's friends? No, we are honest about that, at any rate. Germany may be enjoying this war. We aren't. What was your profession? Pamela inquired. Diplomacy, Lutchester confided. I intended to become an ambassador. Do you think you have the requisite gifts? What are they? Secrecy, subtlety, caution, and highly developed intelligence, she replied. How's that? All those gifts, he assured her, I possess. She fanned herself for a moment and looked at him. We are not a modest race ourselves, she said, but I think you can give us a lead. By the by, were you playing golf with Senator Hamblin by accident the other afternoon? You mean the old Johnny down at Balsustraw? he asked coolly. I picked him up wandering about by the professional shed. Did you talk politics with him? We gasped a little about the war, Lutchester admitted cheerfully. Pamela laughed. She leaned a little forward. The buzz of conversation now was insistent all around them. Of you, too, she whispered. I prefer Fisher. Lutchester considered the matter for some time. Well, there's no accounting for taste, he said presently. I shouldn't have thought him exactly your type. He may not be, Pamela confessed, 
but at least he has the courage to speak what is in his mind. Lutchester smiled. So Fisher has taken you into his confidence, has he? he murmured. Well, now, that seems queer to me. I should have thought your interest would have lain the other way. As an individual? As an American. I am not wholly convinced of that. Come, he protested, what is the use of a friend from whom you are separated by an unnegotiable space? What unnegotiable space? The Atlantic. And why is the Atlantic unnegotiable? Because of a little affair called the British Fleet, Lutchester pointed out. There is also, she reminded him dryly, the German fleet, and they haven't met yet. Ah, I had almost forgotten there was such a thing, he murmured. Where do they keep it? You know, you aren't nearly so stupid as you pretend to be, she said a little impatiently. I should like you so much better if you would be frank with me. What about those qualifications for my ambassadorial career, he reminded her. Secrecy, subtlety, caution. The master of these, she whispered, rising to her feet, in response to her hostess's signal, knows when to abandon them. Lutchester changed his place to a vacant chair by James Van Tail's side. I was going to ask you, Mr. Van Tail, he inquired, whether your Japanese servant was altogether a success. I think I shall have to get a temporary servant while I am over here. Nikosti was entirely Fisher's affair, Van Tail replied, and I can't say much about him, as I have given up my share of the apartments at the plaza. The fellow's all right, I dare say, but we hadn't the slightest use for a valet. The man on the floor is good enough for anyone. By the by, Lutchester inquired, is Fisher still in New York? No, he's in Washington, Van Tail replied. I believe he's expected back tomorrow. Say, can I ask you a question? Lutchester almost imperceptibly drew his chair a little closer. Of course you can, he assented. What I want to know, Van Tail continued confidentially, is how you get that long run on your clique shots. I saw you play the sixteenth hole, and it looked to me as though the ball were never going to stop. Lutchester smiled. I have made a special study of that shot, he confided. Yes, I can tell you how it's done, but it needs a lot of practice. It's done in turning over the wrist sharply, just at the moment of impact. You get everything there is to be got into the stroke that way, and you keep the ball low, too. Gee, I must try that, Van Tail observed, making spasmodic movements with his wrist. When could we have a day down at Baltistral? It will have to be next week, I'm afraid, if you don't mind, Lutchester replied. I've a good many appointments in New York, and I may have to go to Washington myself. By the by, I thought our host lived there. So he does, Van Tail assented. Nowadays, though, it seems to have become the fashion for politicians to own a house up in New York and do some entertaining here. They're after the financial interest, I suppose. Is your uncle a keen politician? Keen as mustard, Van Tail answered. So's my aunt. She'd give her soul to have the old man nominated for the presidency. Any chance of it? Not unearthly. He'll come a mucker, though, some day trying. He'd take any outside chance. For a clever man he's the vainest thing I know. Lutchester smiled enigmatically as he followed the example of the others, and rose to his feet. Even in America, then, he observed, your great men have their weaknesses. End of chapter 22 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com